By the way, God, we want to say hi to all the Podrishioners. Uh, we have got somewhere between eight and 9,000 uh, Podrishioners a week. Uh, so we want to say hi to you. Bless you. Uh, we're, you're part of us. I love that. It, that's just been growing and growing. Uh, I got a testimony from a house church in uh, uh, Qatar, uh, Africa, and they have a ministry to Muslims. And they uh, have this house church that's based on, they download the sermons, and then they invite Muslims in, and they talk about it. And so it's just, it's just the word's going places, and I, it's just a wonderful opportunity. I thank God for that. So hello, parishioners. It's really good to have you on board. Uh, if you're visiting for the first time, uh, and you're not a parishioner, but you're actually in this auditorium, we want to give you a special welcome. Of course, we're welcoming parishioners for the first time as well. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 10, because that's where we're going to be preaching from. And as you're doing that, I will uh, give a couple announcements. Tonight, we are having our 15-year celebration. Woo! Amen. 6.30 to 8 o'clock. Uh, and really encourage you all to be here. It's, it's going to be our covenant partner meeting, uh, but we're also inviting everyone to be a part of this. And... Um, we're going to have a little presentation on the history of Woodland Hills Church and talk about some of the highlights and things of that sort. Uh, but we're just here to celebrate what God has done in the last 15 years because God has done a lot in the last 15 years. And uh, we want to give him the praise for that. Uh, there's a meal that will be served at 5.30, starting at 5.30. They advertise hot dogs. But due to some vegetarian activists in our congregation, uh, they are now having vegetarian meals as well. So herbivores are welcome and they'll have their own special meal for you. It might just be a piece of lettuce, but still. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. Okay, turn to Luke chapter 10. We are in the middle of a uh, series called Revolting Beauty. Because the kingdom of God is all about manifesting the beauty of God's love revealed in Jesus Christ and revolting against everything in our life and in the world that's inconsistent with that beauty. The kingdom is a beautiful revolution. Jesus didn't come to start a religion. He came to start a revolution. That's not a revolution like the American Revolution or, or the, the French Revolution or any other kind of revolution that, that, that uses violence to go forward. It's a, it's a revolution uh, that goes forward by manifesting the beauty of the love of God in a million different ways and, and concretely expressing that in a million different ways. So this is called revolting beauty. It's a beauty that revolts. And uh, this is all part of our larger series on the book of Luke because we're just preaching through the book of Luke. We don't do anything fancy here, just down-home Bible studies. And so we've been in the book of Luke for like two or three years and we'll be in it for another two or three years probably. But we love this book. This message is called Surprised by the Outcast. And here's what I'm up against. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. And what I'm up against is that most of you know the story of the Good Samaritan. I should say most of you think you know the story of the Good Samaritan. Uh, what I found this week as I was studying for this message is, is uh, that this story, most people think the story is about being nice to people, and it certainly involves that. But this story is far more profound and far more radical than being nice. In fact, this message, uh, the Good Samaritan story, if we get our hearts and minds around this, it will rock our world. It will challenge us. Uh, it will hit us between the eyes. That's what we come to church for, right? Uh, now you're tickling around here. This is a confrontational message. Uh, Jesus here is just brilliant. The guy's a genius. Uh, you're going to see this. I mean, he's the son of God, but he's, he's a genius. He's a genius son of God. Uh, he is so subversive. Uh, in this uh, story that he tells. It's just beautiful. It's also very challenging. So prepare to be, prepare to be challenged. Uh, Luke chapter 10, we'll start with verse 25. The first couple of verses we preached on last week, and now we're going to move on uh, with it this week. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the question that's on the table, this whole parable here. Okay, what does eternal life look like? What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you interpret it? The man answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your, your uh, soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And of course, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. You'll inherit eternal life. So far, so good. We preached on all that last week. If you weren't here last week, I encourage you to get the message. It's a, it's, it's a, the, the, the center of the kingdom is carrying out what's called the royal law in James. Love the Lord thy God, love your neighbor as yourself. 
Finally, look at this. You answer correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you'll live. But the man, the lawyer, wanted to justify himself. And with that motive in mind, he asked Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? What this lawyer's trying to do, and he's a religious lawyer now, is he's trying to find a loophole. Okay, that's the royal law. Who do I get to not apply that to? Who do I get to not love? Who do I get to say uh, is not my neighbor? Who can I feel justified not loving? Who can I feel justified treating not as a neighbor but as an enemy? In reply, Jesus said, and this is brilliant, he doesn't answer the man's question, he just tells a story. There's this guy, he's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he comes upon this guy who, who uh, fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes so he's naked. They beat him and they went away, leaving him for half dead. The word half dead there simply means he appeared dead. They left him for dead. So there's a naked, dead-looking guy on the side of the road. There's a priest who happens to be going down the same road, and when he sees the man, he passes by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came upon to the place and saw the guy, he passed by on the other side. So here there's two men in a cloth, two clerics, two, two religious people, and uh, they pretend to not notice. They just kind of conveniently migrate to the other side of the road. Maybe they noticed a bird or something. Uh, we're not told what their motive was, why they didn't want to help this guy, but I'm sure they had some story in their head that they told themselves that justified their passing this guy by. They're, they're, they're important people. Uh, maybe the robbers are still around. They could get in danger. Uh, maybe this guy deserted what he got coming to him anyway. So who knows? Maybe it was a gang fight. Maybe they got a religious duty to perform for crying out loud. How are they supposed to stop and help this guy on the side of the road? Who knows what they told themselves, but there's some way that they had of, 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 uh, of excusing their unwillingness to help this guy. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. Samaritans, as you may know, were uh, probably the most despised group of people among ancient Jews uh, for reasons that I'll get into a little bit later on. But this despised, despised Samaritan sees this man, and unlike the priest and the Levite, uh, he has pity on the guy, and he takes care of him. You should also know that in all likelihood, given the demographics of this area uh, in the first century, this guy, the victim, was probably Jewish. And given the prejudice of, of Jews towards Samaritans, it, it's likely that if this Jew had come upon uh, a Samaritan who had been victimized like this, he wouldn't have returned the favor. He wouldn't have helped him out, in all probability. In all probability, this Samaritan is helping somebody who would have been regarded as, as his enemy. Now, Jesus doesn't specify that the guy was Jewish because his point is that it shouldn't depend on the nationality or the race or the culture or anything of the victim. Uh, we're to have this attitude to all people at all times. But just to kind of set a context here, the Samaritan's helping him out. He went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Uh, now, they didn't carry first aid kits in those days, so the bandages they're talking about probably were his own clothes. He had to rip off some of his own clothes and bandage those wounds. And he takes the oil that he had with him and anoints the guy because that would soothe the wound. And he applies uh, wine on the wounds in order to disinfect them. And when he does that, he just gives up his oil and wine that he would use to refresh himself on his journey wherever he happens to be going. He's sacrificially loving this man. Then he puts the victim on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. He puts the victim on the donkey, which means the Samaritan now has to walk wherever he's going. There's no hospitals in those days, and no one has insurance policies. There's no social safety nets. And, and so this Samaritan takes responsibility for the guy, and he brings him to an inn. The inns in those days were simply larger than the necessary houses that people would rent out to, to people who were traveling. And the average inn could accommodate, it wasn't like a Motel 6 or Embassy Suites. It, they could usually accommodate one to three families uh, that were traveling. So he takes him to an inn. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Note that it says the next day. So this Samaritan spent the night with this guy, caring for this guy. Wherever that Samaritan was going to get that night, he didn't get there. Because he took time out to take care of this man. Then he gives two denarii. A denarii was about a day's wage. Um, we know that most inns at this time charged one-twelfth of a denarii. 
So the Samaritan gives enough for 24 days' stay at this inn and says, don't just let him have a room, take care of him, and whatever that costs you, I will cover it. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law, this religious lawyer, he can't bring himself to say Samaritan. Too much prejudice there. But he says, the one who had mercy on him, duh. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. The story is as profound as it is confrontational. Pray with me here for a moment. Lord, your brilliance shines in this passage. Help me, however inadequately, to reflect that brilliance. Most importantly, Lord, help us to collapse our self-justifying defense mechanisms that prevent your word from getting deep inside of us and confront us and change us and build your kingdom in our minds and in our hearts and in our lives. Pull the rug out from under us if that's what we need. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. There are two great reversals that take place in this story, and they're brilliant. And both of the reversals are geared to catch this lawyer in a self-justifying process of thinking. All right? And both of these reversals are going to be used to catch us this morning in our self-justifying ways of thinking. The first reversal is, is like this. The guy starts off by asking, who is my neighbor? Because he wants to justify himself not treating certain types of people as neighbors. He wants to feel justified not loving certain kinds of people. He wants to feel justified considering certain people to be his enemies. Now, this was a much-discussed question in ancient Judaism. The, The phrase, love your neighbor as yourself, that command actually comes out of the Old Testament. But in the Old Testament context, it's not clear exactly who the neighbor is referring to. Uh, It looks as though uh, that passage was limiting it to the citizens of Israel. So there was a lot of people who said, well, our neighbor are our fellow Jews, uh, fellow Israelites. But of course, there were some who wanted to be justified not loving other Israelites because some other Israelites maybe are kind of nasty to you. And so some would say, well, our neighbor is not just ethnic Jews, but, but it's anyone who's a faithful Jew, someone who's living out the Torah and, and really acting in ways that honor God. Then some said, well, you know, there are Gentiles who join Judaism and, and, and who, who live like Jews, so the law maybe should apply to them, uh, but not to Gentiles who don't act in, in really good Jewish ways. But then some said, well, look, there are some Gentiles who don't act in Jewish ways, but they act very nice and whatever, so maybe we should consider them to be our, our, our neighbors. Whoever acts honorably can be our neighbor. Well, that leads to the question, well, who is, well, what is honorable? I mean, who sets the criteria for, for, for what honorable is? Who, who gets to define that? And so there's a whole bunch of theoretical questions about who our neighbor is and, and who is honorable and those sorts of things, who is worthy of our neighborly treatment. It was a, it was a widely discussed theoretical question at the time. If you look at this passage closely, Jesus never answers this guy's question. However he would have answered it, it would have been controversial because a lot of people disagreed upon this. But Jesus always wisely avoids those sorts of theoretical, uh, political kinds of questions, and he turns the question back on the man. He never answers this question. He never enters into this theoretical discussion. Because however he answered it, people could use it to, self-just- to justify not loving certain kinds of people. Instead, Jesus tells a story. But the story is not about who our neighbor is. The story is about what it looks like for us to be a neighbor. And then he says, go and do likewise. In other words, Jesus here is saying that your theoretical question, with all of its endless, potentially endless debates, The theoretical question about who is and is not a neighbor is the exact wrong question. I'll answer your question by giving you the right question. The right question you need to be asking is this. What does it look like for me to be a neighbor? And he answers that by pointing us to the Samaritan. This is what a neighbor looks like. Go thou and do likewise. Live in the question, what does it look like for me to be a neighbor? And you don't answer that by getting into a lot of theoretical discussions. You answer that question by making a very important decision in your life uh, to do it. You just go out and do it. Jesus here brilliantly transforms a self-justifying theoretical question into a personal 
or we could say existential question. And he turns it back on the questioner. It's brilliant. And he's doing that to us here this morning. And it's brilliant. We all, I believe, if we're honest with ourselves, have a tendency to sometimes try to justify ourselves by getting inside of our head. By asking a lot of questions and making things that are really clear very ambiguous so we don't ever have to get around to actually doing the things that are clearly said. We, we can all get involved in self-justifying sort of thinking. Here's an example. Last week, I showed a picture of Jesus uh, washing. It's, it's, it's from my Brad, friend, Brad Cole, who runs this conference on the character of God, and he hired this artist to paint this picture of Jesus washing the feet of world leaders, including Osama bin Laden. It's a brilliant picture because it, fo- it, it, it confronts us so honestly. Uh, it creates a dilemma for us. On the one hand, it's undeniable that Jesus would do this. It's undeniable that Jesus died not just for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. And so it's undeniable that Jesus died not just for our sins, but also for the sins of Osama bin Laden. And it's undeniable that if Jesus died for Osama bin Laden, he certainly washed the feet of Osama bin Laden, because washing the feet of somebody is nothing compared to dying for him. So it's undeniable that this picture is telling the truth. On the other hand, some of us may not like it. In fact, I know some of you don't like it. I've heard from a few of you. (laughs) Some may want to feel justified restricting the application of the royal law so it doesn't have to cover Asama. Uh, Some may want to even feel justified hating Asama, and we'll just call it righteous indignation. Some may want to feel justified wanting Asama bin Laden, or maybe it's somebody else, to burn in flaming hell. You don't want to pray the prayer that Jesus prayed at the very end of his life when he's crucified. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And so we're caught in this dilemma. And if we're not careful, we can start asking a lot of self-justifying theoretical questions. Now, the dilemma itself is is a good one. And I appreciate folks who have been very honest saying, man, on the one hand, it's undeniable that the picture is true. On the other hand, I just hate it. I can't do it. I, 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 I just can't let go of this. That's honesty, and I love that. Just live in that contradiction and offer it up to God and ask God to do something in your heart that you can't do on your own. Unless you're receiving more and more of the love of God in the midst of our, your, your, your imperfection and sinfulness, you'll never be empowered to get out of it. So, so that, that honesty is good. But what can happen is we try to resolve the cognitive dissonance that the message creates for us by justifying ourselves. And we can get involved in a lot of self-justifying behavior. Oh, obviously Jesus said, love your enemies. Yes, he said, do good to your enemies, bless your enemies, uh, forgive your enemies, never retaliate against your enemies, uh, pray for your enemies. Yeah, he said that, but what does that really mean? Uh, You know, it's kind of ambiguous. Who are our enemies? I mean, really. uh, You know, uh, uh, that's a tough question. Who are our enemies? Let's think about it a little bit. Maybe Jesus is referring to personal enemies. But come on, clearly he's not referring to national enemies. Uh, Maybe he just means people who are mean to us. Those kind of enemies, but not enemies that really threaten us or threaten our nation. Obviously, he can't be meaning that. Maybe he means enemies who, who have a justified grievance against us. We did something, you know, wrong them, and so they're justified seeing themselves. But he obviously, obviously, if it's unjust mistreatment of us, he doesn't mean that we're supposed to love them. Come on, use your common sense for crying out loud. And, and so we could write tomes, volumes about what our enemies, you know, are, are and who the enemies aren't and when we're justified not loving them. In fact, volumes have been written on that. Oh, and yeah, Jesus says, love your enemies whoever they may be, but, but what is love? Well, love's an ambiguous thing. A lot of people disagree on love. Philosophers have argued about love. I mean, love, we have to spend a couple of years at least trying to get down what love is all about. I mean, St. Augustine, the great St. Augustine, he said, love is an inner disposition of the heart that does not necessarily translate into any particular behavior uh, in our bodies. And therefore, you can theoretically love your enemy even while you're torturing them and killing them. Uh, Because, you see, loving God, the creator of the enemy, is more important than loving the enemy. If God wills for you to torture and kill your enemy, then you're actually doing your enemy a service by killing him and torturing them. You're, in a a sort of way, trying to express love to them. I have no clue what he's talking about, and I don't think anyone else does either. But, hey, we could spend a lot of time uh, talking about this and theorizing about this. And guess what? All the while, we could feel justified in not loving our enemies. In fact, we feel justified torturing and killing them. Folks, the truth is this. The teaching about loving enemies, to use one example, is about as straightforward as anything in the Bible is. Uh, It is as straightforward as anything could be. There's not that much complex in the the, the issue. 
Um, Jesus says, love your enemies, and the Bible is very clear about what love is. In fact, it doesn't give us the definition at all, thank God, because then we could theorize about it. It points us to a person. The person is Jesus Christ, 1 John 3, 16. You want to know what love is? Hey, look at him. And it specifies, 1 John 3, 16. Uh, while we were yet enemies, Jesus died for us. That's how we're supposed to live. Here's how we know what love is. Jesus Christ gave his life for us, so also we should give our life for others. Uh, that's pretty clear, I'm thinking. It's pretty straightforward. Um, and, and there's no ifs, and there's no ands, and there's no buts, and there's no exception clauses, and there's no theoretical discussions about this in the Bible. It's just pretty straightforward. Here's how you treat your enemies, the way God treated you when you were an enemy. Go thou and do likewise. God bless you. But see, we may not like that. It makes us feel uncomfortable. We want to selectively apply the royal law. So we insert a lot of if, ands, buts, maybe theoretical discussions, possibilities in order to obfuscate the obvious, in order to complexify the, the, the issue, which is really quite simple, and so that we never have to get around to actually doing what Jesus says. And the result of the whole thing, folks, if we're not careful, is we end up loving the people we would have loved anyways, even if Jesus never said a word on the topic. And we end up hating the people we would hate anyways, despite the fact that Jesus said a lot of words on the topic. Let me say that again, because it came out just right. <laughs> when we get inside of our head and get in all these theoretical discussions, what happens is we love up, end up loving the people we would have loved anyways, even if Jesus never said a word on the topic. And we end up hating the people we want to hate anyways, despite the fact that Jesus said a lot of words on the topic. Because after all, it's very ambiguous. And we feel justified in our selective loving and justified in our selective hating. And what this passage, the Good Samaritan story, is confronting us with right here and right now is this. Jesus is saying, stop justifying yourself with your theoretical questions. Stop justifying yourself with your clever, loophole kind of thinking. Think about this. The question, who is my enemy, is simply the flip side of the question, who is my neighbor? However you answer the question, who is my neighbor, whoever gets excluded from that becomes your justified enemy. So they're, they're, they're both theoretical, uh, theoretical questions, and they're both wrong questions. That's the point of the passage. That's the wrong question to ask. Who is my enemy? What does loving my enemy look like? The right question it's not about other people at all. Who is my neighbor or my enemy? The right question is about me. Am I living like a neighbor to whoever I come upon? Am I sacrificing like the Good Samaritan to anyone who is in need? Am I responding to my enemies? However you want to define that, with all your theoretical discussions, wonderful, 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 however you define that, am I responding to whoever those people are the way Jesus responded to me when I was yet an enemy? The right question is to ask, am I living in love as Christ has loved me? And that's why the Bible tells us, we saw it last week, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Live in love as Christ loved you and gave his life for you. You don't have to ask or try to answer one theoretical question to do that. You simply need to take your pulse. And if it's beating, love. Check your breath. If you have, if you have any breath at all, good or bad, uh, if you're breathing, you're alive. It's the right time to love. Do you have any brain activity at all? I'm thinking that if you're wondering if you have any brain activity, you probably do. It's the right time to love. If you're alive, then you love, and it doesn't matter who's around you or what's around you, what your circumstances are, the Bible commands you to live in love. And what is love? Love looks like Calvary. Love is defined by pointing us to Jesus Christ. Be Christ-like to whoever you come upon as long as you're alive. That's the teaching. No theoretical questions necessary. No ambiguity necessary. It's all very straightforward. Or consider what Paul says. We saw this last week as well. 1 Corinthians 16, 14. Do everything in love. You don't have to answer or ask one theoretical question to obey that. If there's something to be done, it's covered in the everything. And it doesn't matter who the doing is towards. It's still a something, therefore it's part of the everything. And therefore, you're supposed to do it in love. There's no ifs, there's no ands, there's no buts, there's no exception clauses, no, no theoretical discussion. The only question is, will you obey it? Folks, it comes down to this. The kingdom of God. Now, I, I love theology. I write theology. I, I, it's, theology is important. Read more of my theology, would you? Uh, it, it, theology is good and, and necessary, but the, the essence of the kingdom is not hard to understand. You don't need very much theology at all. You don't need very much theoretical discussion at all. In fact, you don't need any. The, the, the kingdom of God is profoundly simple. Be like Jesus. The challenge of the kingdom is not to try to understand it. It's really understandable. The challenge is to live it. 
But see, if we don't want to, if there's parts of us that resist living it, well, then it's to our advantage not to understand it. And so we complexify it with a myriad of, of, uh, of, of theoretical, uh, complex sorts of questions. The first great ingenious reversal that goes on in this passage is that Jesus turns the theoretical question into a personal question and he applies it to the questioner. And he's saying, don't go worried about who is and is not your neighbor. You don't need to even think about that question. Worry about being a neighbor to everyone at all times, no ifs, ands, or buts. And being a neighbor, by the way, looks like the Good Samaritan. Being a neighbor looks like what Paul talks about in Romans 12. If your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat. If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. And never exact vengeance or retaliation on them. The second ingenious, brilliant reversal is this. The priest and the Levite passed by on the other side of the road. These were people who worked in the temple. They were among the most respected people in first century Jewish culture. And by contrast, as I said earlier, the Samaritan would have been among the most, if not the most, despised person in Jewish culture. If there's one person that lawyer really, 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 really wants to not be a neighbor, uh, really, really wants to justify himself not loving, it's the Samaritan. And Jesus tells a parable here, which in that first century Jewish context is shocking. It's subversive. It reverses everything. It would have been something like this, and prepare to be shocked. Um, so there's this girl walking down the street, and she gets attacked by a bunch of muggers, and she gets raped and beat up and left for dead. Billy Graham happens to be walking by, but he passes by on the other side of the road. And then Mother Teresa comes by, and she passes by on the other side of the road. But there's this transvestite who's just coming back from one of his transvestite parties, and he's singing and dancing down the road, and he sees this young girl uh, almost dead and beat up. And so he, he, he picks her up, and he carries her to a hospital, and she doesn't have any insurance, so he says, I'll foot the whole bill. And he sacrifices everything he was doing and everything he owns to help out this young lady. Go thou and be like the transvestite, not like Billy Graham or Mother Teresa. Now, that is how the, the original audience would have heard this message. It would be profoundly offensive and shocking. And what Jesus is doing here is he's confronting the self-justifying judgment thought process of this lawyer. Because see, this lawyer, like all of us to some degree, he has a grid stuck in his head. And the grid is his way of assessing people, measuring people up, sizing people up, filing people into different categories. And there are some people who are important, and of course there's other people who aren't important. And some people are insiders, but other people are outsiders, and they're all cast. And some people are holy, and other people are sinners. And some people are, are, are with God, and other people are not with God. And he's got this grid that he assesses people with. It's his own version of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the original sin in the Bible. Go back to Genesis 2 and 3. And that tree is about judgment because judgment blocks the main job that we have as human beings, and that's to love as God has loved us. Judgment blocks that. He's got that tree of the knowledge of good and evil stuck in his head. And of course, he always bends it to his own favor, as, as, as he always does, to justify himself. And in his grid, the two, the two clerics are at the top of the list, the important, holy, insider people. And in his grid, the Samaritan is at the bottom of the list the despised, the despicable, the grotesque. His judgment really has three aspects to it. Okay, listen to this. On the one hand, he has a race ju judgment, a racist judgment, what we today would call race. Um, uh, Samaritans were, 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 they were regarded as hybrids by uh, Orthodox Jews. They were partly Jewish, but their blood had been mingled with some Gentiles, so a lot of Jews, in fact, most Jews saw them as worse than Gentiles. And so there was a race judgment here. They, uh, this lawyer did not want to see him as a neighbor because of that race judgment. There's also a religious judgment here. Uh, the Samaritans were regarded as being heretics because they had a little bit of a different Bible, uh, different Torah than, than the Orthodox Jews in Jerusalem. And, and uh, uh, they didn't worship in Jerusalem. They didn't honor the temple. They worshiped on their own mountain. And uh, they didn't apply the law as, as strictly as a lot of the Orthodox Jews did. So they were looked down on as being the sinners and, and judged as being the sinners. So there was a race judgment and there was a religious judgment. There was also a huge class judgment that this uh, lawyer was involved in. Because see, the city dwellers in Jerusalem in particular, they looked at these rural Samaritans way up there in the north as just being sort of, you know, today we call hillbillies or, or the backwoods sort of people. They're just sort of the lowlifes. They're, they're the, the, the trailer park trash or whatever word you want to give to that kind of a judgment. There's a class judgment here. And so the Samaritan wouldn't want to regard them as, as neighbors uh, and as someone that he has to apply the royal law to. 
By making Jesus, here's, here's the genius of Jesus. By making the priest and the Levite the villains in the story, and by making the Samaritan the hero of the story, Jesus takes this man's judgmental grid and he turns it right on its head. And he's saying to the lawyer and he's saying to us, those people that you, you're so sure are the holy heroes and the insiders of God's program may actually, from God's perspective, be the unholy losers and the outsiders in God's program. And the reason is, is because they restrict the application of the royal law. But conversely, those that you are so sure are the unholy losers and the outsiders may in fact be the holy heroes and the insiders in the kingdom from God's perspective because they don't restrict the application of the royal law. Jesus is subverting the whole value system of this religious lawyer. It's something he did all the time in the Gospels. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. Those who thought they were inside are outside. Those who thought they were outside are inside. He says to the Pharisees, uh, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are getting into heaven before you guys. Really in their faith, turning their, in their face, turning their, their, their judgment grid upside down. And then Jesus adds uh, injury to insult and ups the ante even further when he says this. Mr. Lawyer who loves to justify himself with all sorts of theoretical questions, not only do you have to love the Samaritan, you have to humbly learn from that Samaritan. That man you despise because of his race and religion and sinfulness and class, you make it your highest aspiration in life. If you're serious about eternal life, you're serious about entering in the kingdom, you, you make it your aspiration to be like that man, that man that you despise. You emulate that man that you despise. Follow him around for a couple of years and take close notes. Uh, because if, if you're like him, you'll be walking in eternal life. But if you're not like him, you're on the outside. It's the great reversal, and it's absolutely brilliant. And it applies to us today. If we all have, to some degree, a, self, a self-justifying grid, a way of filing people, classifying people. It's our version of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and it's always bent in our favor to justify ourselves. We've got a way of, of deciding who's inside, who's outside, who's holy, who's not holy, who's important, who's not, who's, who's not important. And we justify treating people based on that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what Jesus is saying is this, to live out the royal law, loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself, to manifest and inherit eternal life, that grid has got to be collapsed. In fact, that grid has got to be turned upside down such that now you go out of your way to welcome and serve and humbly learn from those who are at the bottom end of your judgmental grid. That's what he's saying to the lawyer. That's what he's saying to us. The one you most look down to, humble yourself to the point where you're looking up to them and learn from them. It may be that some here are plagued by a religious judgment as the lawyer was. You may feel, try to feel justified because, of course, you're not perfect, but at least you're not like that kind of sinner. At least you're not like those sorts of sinners. And you feel justified because you're not like those kind of sinners. And you feed off of that contrast. You're not perfect, but at least you're not a transvestite. And what Jesus is saying to us is collapse that judgment. If you want to manifest the kingdom of God, do the opposite of that judgment. You consider their sin whatever it is to be a mere dust particle compared to the tree that's sticking out of your own eye. And first take out that tree in your own eye before you even worry about taking out the dust particle in somebody else's eye. You humble yourself. You go out of your way to, to, to minister to, to welcome, and to learn from the person you're inclined to judge the most. Go out of your way to be a neighbor to that transvestite, to serve that transvestite, to sacrifice for that transvestite, and realizing that you're a greater sinner than, than he is, you ask the question, what can I learn from this transvestite? And you may just find that God will surprise you and that maybe there's a whole lot about life you're supposed to learn from that transvestite. But if you've got religious arrogance, you don't think you have anything to learn from a sinner like that, so God needs to humble you and will have you taking notes on some aspects of life from the transvestite. Amen. Now, if you got religion in your head, if you got religion in your head, what you just heard is always condoning being a transvestite. And I'm not condoning that. 
I don't condone some of my own life. (laughs) And you don't condone everything in your life either. It's not about what we condone or what we don't condone. It's simply about testifying that we belong to a kingdom where we're called to put, not put our sin beneath someone else's sin or put our righteousness above someone else's righteousness. We're called to testify to a kingdom where we are a humble neighbor who simply agrees uh, with God that every person we see was worth Jesus Christ dying for and to reflect that in how we think about them and how we speak to them and in how we treat them and to concretely manifest that through self-sacrificial service. Collapse the religious judgment, turn it on, on its head. Some here maybe have racial judgment. Maybe you're not even aware of it, but there's some part of your brain which under the right conditions starts saying, oh, those black people, or those, 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 those uh, Hispanics, or those Hmong people, or those Native Americans, or those Mexicans, or those Jews, they're always, or those Asians, why they always, or those illegal immigrants, that's what's wrong with the country. They're undermining our economy. They're doing this, that, and the other thing. Well, there's a story we tell in our head about those people. And Jesus, if, we're let, if we'll let him... In this passage, he is confronting us and he's saying, collapse that judgment. You want to manifest eternal life? You want to manifest the kingdom? Go out of your way to be a neighbor, especially to those people that you're inclined to judge. Serve those people. Sacrifice for those people. And humbly ask yourself the question, what can I learn from those people? And you may be surprised what God will teach you from those people. In fact, I can promise you that if you'll collapse your racist judgment and intentionally go out of your way to build relationships with people of other ethnicities, your life will be enriched in ways you couldn't imagine. Amen. Our addiction to homogenous culture, our monoculturalism, chokes us. To some degree, it dehumanizes us, and it certainly keeps us from manifesting the full beauty of the kingdom. You cross those race lines and, and collapse your judgments, and, and, and you'll find food that, that you never knew existed, and you'll learn to enjoy it. And you'll enter into a different way of doing music, and a different way of doing culture, and a different way of doing worship, and a different perspective on life. You'll be enriched because of it, and the kingdom will grow in your life because of it. But it requires that you collapse every ounce of that judgment that you might have had against them and intentionally go out of your way, especially to, quote-unquote, those kinds of people. And some here may have a class judgment. In America, we've got all sorts of class judgment, but we're arrogant enough to think that we don't. We're so used to it, we don't even notice it. There's certain types of people that we just see as, well, you know. They just, well, you know. Uh, they're just not as important, though we wouldn't say that, of course. Uh, they, they just don't count. They're not up to snuff. Uh, it, it, maybe it's those lower class folks, those poor people, they smell funny, those uneducated people. Uh, maybe it's the physically and mentally disabled. It's those sorts of people. You know, they're just sort of the extras in the world, and, and they're just not as important as other types of people like you and me, perhaps. I mean, I, I could hear, imagine somebody thinking to themselves, maybe you wouldn't admit this, maybe you didn't even, didn't even know you thought this, but during that uh, uh, ministry moment about disabilities that we had earlier, you might be thinking, okay, well, let's get practical here. Uh, you know, we, if we really open our doors to disabled people and really go out of our way to try to welcome them, well, that's going to take a lot of resources, it's going to take a lot of manpower, it's going to take a lot of money, and, and things are stretched kind of thin as it is right now. Let's get practical about this. And after all, it's not like they're going to be, you know, really putting a lot in the offering plate and giving a lot back to the church and, and so is this really practical? The way to find out whether you have a class judgment is not to ask yourself the question or ask anyone else the question. Just watch the behavior. Uh, we value what we put our money to, what we put our time to, what we put our energy to, and we'll find that there are certain types of people that we just don't put a lot of time, energy, and money to as individuals and as a church. And what Jesus is saying to us is this. If you want to manifest the kingdom, you go out of your way especially to be a neighbor to those classes of people that you look down on, that you judge. Go out of your way to welcome and serve and learn from the poor. Welcome and serve and learn from the homeless. Welcome and serve and learn from the quote-unquote uneducated. Welcome and learn and, and, and serve the physically and mentally disabled. Because the truth of the matter is that those people are as precious in God's eyes as you or me or anybody else on the planet. And Jesus died for those people as much as you or me or anyone else on the planet. And the mind-boggling truth that we need to get get our heads around is this. The truth is that we have as much to learn from those people, those classes of people, and to be blessed from those classes of people as we do anybody else on the planet. They have something to teach us and grow in us that cannot be learned and grown in any other way. We need them. It's not just that we want to serve them. We need them. 
There's something they bring to the table that we don't have. If we are going to manifest individually and collectively the full beauty of the kingdom, we need them. I'll end with this story. I, I, um, uh, when I was in, in college, all the way through college, I worked with uh, kids who were mentally challenged in very serious ways. And then uh, years later, I worked at a home for uh, men who had been in accidents, uh, had, had brain injuries, and they were all uh, physically and uh, to some degree mentally disabled. And there's one man in this home that I worked at. Uh, his name was Scott. And he was, he'd been a superstar athlete all through high school and, and was a really good-looking guy, kind of a playboy kind of guy. And then he had an accident at the age of 21 on a motorcycle, and he, he, he had a serious head injury. And now he was close to being a paraplegic, and he had a very serious head injury that prevented him from uh, having some of the normal capacities of a, of a mind. Although, if you took the time to talk to him, you found out that there's a lot more going on in his head than you might think. But see, it, it took a lot of patience to talk to him because he didn't have enough strength to breathe out while to, to, to you know, voice words. So he had to like time it and press on his chest in a certain way with each word so he could breathe it out like that. Scott wanted, he, he was determined to get as much back on his, from his body as he could possibly get. So he worked out all the time. His, his legs, he was kind of crumpled up, his arms, everything was just sort of crumpled up because of this head injury. But he was determined to get as much of that body back as he could. So he worked out all the time. So when I would, would be working at this home, he would want me to take him out and do some exercise, go for a walk or whatever. So there's this one Saturday, and, and I'm there, and, he's, and he, he tells me he wants to go for a walk. So I take him down to Lake Phelan. He loved to go to Lake Phelan because there was all sorts of pretty girls there in the summer, and this guy liked to check out pretty girls. It, it was amazing. The guy was amazing. He would I, I would take him to clubs, and he couldn't talk, but somehow he would get girls in his wheelchair to dance with him. And there are always these knockout girls, and he'd go up to them. I don't know how he communicated. There's something, pheromones or something going on there, but these girls would be dancing with him. Sometimes he'd even stand them up, and he'd be dancing. It was, it was, it was like, how, did, how does he do that? Uh, not that I was trying to pick up notes or anything. I'm just, you know... <clears throat> Okay, look at So we're down on Lake Phelan, and we're walking. He's got his wheelchair, and, and there's a, we had a strap to hold him up because he couldn't support himself. And, and he would go at, you know, like a little inch at a time. It would take about a half hour to go maybe 30 feet. And so we're inching along. At some point, a real cute girl comes rollerblading past. And Scott turns to look, you know, to get as much of a look as he can get. And in turning, oh no, I, I, before I say this, I got to tell you this. At this time, I was going through a stage of my life uh, it was a pre-midlife pre crisis, maybe, I don't know. But I was doing ultra marathons. I was running these 50-mile races, 100-mile races, 100-kilometer races. And I was pretty good at them, actually, I'll, I'll tell you that. Um, so I, I was doing a lot of racing, and I, I was really, really in good shape. But I just had an injury in my groin area. The muscle pull and my sciatic nerve was all screwed up. And so I had to take a break from running, which was bothering me because there was this really important 50-mile race that I wanted to train for that was happening in the fall, and I was convinced that I could maybe win this thing. And so I, was, I, I had taken three or four weeks off of running, but I wanted to get back to it as soon as possible because if I lose, lose too much more training, I'll never have a, a chance to win this race. And, and the, the, I'm just starting to get healed. I, I had just started jogging lightly again, and I'm on the mend, okay? So I'm uh, walking with Scott. He's checking out this cute girl, and as he's turning to check out the cute girl, he falls over because he's turning it so hard. And I have to then crouch down and catch him. And when I crouch down to catch him, I totally rip out that muscle in the groin area. I, there's this shooting pain that goes through my leg. He, we're there laying on the ground now as people are rolling by. And that's what Scott was doing. He was laughing. He thought this was hilarious. <laughs> he, he just thought it was a riot. But I, in feeling this pain, didn't think it was funny. In fact, I lost it. I got so mad. And this is before I received entire sanctification, so a few words did come out of my mouth. <laughs> I, I swore a little here and there. I was really mad. And the whole season's going to be shot, and I was just feeling sorry for myself and mad. And then I look over, and I'm mad at him for checking out the girl so thoroughly. And, and he starts to mouth something. Now, he's on his back, so he really can't get any volume at all. So I lean over, and I press on his chest, and the first word is, I'm. And the next word is, sorry. Wham. Uh, I just sat there. I, I was just stunned. And I rolled back on my back, and I started to cry. And it was like God himself said, Greg Boyd, 
your priorities suck. <laughs> you're, you're, you know, uh, God used Scott to teach me something and rearrange my life and my priorities and my self-centered, petty perspective on life. Here, this guy can't walk or use his arms and his, he's, he's proud when he can walk 30 feet. And here, I'm worried about winning a 50-mile race. And, and you know, it just uh, had everything wrong. Everything wrong. And, and God used him to teach me a lesson I don't think I could have learned any other way. If an able-bodied person came up and said, Greg, what are you sulking about? My, don't you know there are people who can't even walk? My golly, you should not be feeling sorry for yourself. You know, I would have been, I could have justified myself. It would have been, oh, you don't understand how important this race is or something like that. But coming out of Scott, it was just a whammy. He taught me something so profound. It changed my life forever to some degree on how I, what I take for granted and what I don't take for granted. Folks, we need these people to come to the table. Uh, and and it, it includes dis people with disabilities, but all sorts of other sorts of people that we're inclined to dismiss as being not very important. Close your eyes for a moment. As the worship team comes forward, we're going to enter into another time of worship. But I want to give the Holy Spirit a chance to just... Tell us what we're supposed to bring home from this. Open your heart to the Holy Spirit, collapse all defense mechanisms, and let the Holy Spirit tell you what you need, what you need to know. Do you have some degree of self-justifying thinking going on? Because there's somebody you want to feel justified not loving. If there is, then just be honest with God. Admit that you find it impossible to love this person. But don't justify it. Confess it. And ask God to give you his love for this person. Once you get that self-justifying thought out of the way, now, you're, now the avenue is open for God to pour more of his love into you. And that's what you need because you can't give what you don't have. Is there somebody in your life that you look down on, that you judge, that you despise? Or maybe you just think they're not that important. Holy Spirit, reveal to us who that person or who that people group is. It might be people with disabilities. It might be a race. It might be a class. It might be a particular sin group. Whatever. And if the Holy Spirit reveals a person or a group to you, will you humble yourself and ask God to give you a profound love and humility towards them? Ask God to help you collapse your judgment and ask God to help you, instead of looking down to them, look up to them. Get so low that you have to look up and maybe learn something from them. Holy Spirit, have your way. Holy Spirit, have your way. Holy Spirit, have your way. Do your work, Holy Spirit. Folks, we serve a radical God, and it's a radical kingdom. It's radically beautiful. He's a, he's a radically loving, mind-boggling, brilliant Lord, isn't he? Isn't he? And he calls us to reflect that radicalness. I, I want to tell you, I so appreciate a congregation where we can say it straight, even when it's confrontational, even when we don't want to hear it. I'm very aware that in many, many congregations, maybe most, that would be the last sermon I'd ever be asked to preach. <laughs> uh, I, and, and that's why I love you guys. And I just appreciate the fact that you come here and you sit and you take it straight. Uh, really, I mean, I mean that. I, it is an honor. It really is an honor. Uh, serve you and, and uh, just deliver the word like that. We're going to now, I appreciate that, we're going to now worship our Lord, that radical Lord. And the only kind of worship that, that is honoring to the radical Lord is radical worship, whole worship, where we take all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our body, all of our soul, and we direct it towards God. That's about making a decision in the now. It's about making a decision to put everything else out of your mind. Even your own struggles that are going on right now. The best thing you can do for internal struggles that this message created for you is to forget about them for a moment because it's not about you, it's about Him. And focus on Him and honor Him and lift Him up. And as you do that, 
You give them the opportunity to, to invade you and work in levels and depths of your life that otherwise wouldn't get worked on. So let's make the decision here to lift him up. I encourage you to envision who we're singing to and what we're singing about. Run a video in your mind and enter into the spirit realm. And as we do that, the spirit of God encompasses us and fills this place with this Shekinah glory. We'll start by taking up an offering because that is our act of praise. It's how they did in the Old Testament. It's how they did it throughout Scripture. That's how we do it now. We're, we're ascribing worth to God by sacrificing of His resources that He's given to us. And then at the right time, Greg will have a stand and we'll enter into another segment of worship. So Lord, be glorified now in the next 25 minutes. By our offering, Lord, be glorified. By our worship, Lord, be glorified. Draw our attention to be holy and exclusively and passionately centered on you and nothing but you because it's all about you. In Jesus' name, amen. The Lord wants to hear from your heart this morning. He wants to hear you tell him how much you love him, how much you know that he's done for you. So I want to encourage you in that. And let's all sing this song together. Tell him we love him. Tell him he's holy. As creatures, that's our duty to tell that to our creator and the lover of our souls. Amen. king would die for me and then he says go thou and do likewise and that's how we honor him without restrictions without qualifications without if ands or buts be like Christ to others uh, those who feel something in their heart called to be part of this disabilities ministry I want to encourage you to stop at the disability table the table set up there and talk to those folks and start getting on board with that those who maybe didn't have a chance last week to support Providence Ministries as they're raising money to send Haitian kids to school. They've got their hut back in the corner. I encourage you to stop back there. Would the prayer teams come forward? And if you have any need whatsoever that you would like to have prayed for, I encourage you to come up here and, and just uh, pray with these folks. Or you can kneel at the altar on your own if you want. If you're here this morning and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, never made yourself a, a disciple of his, this is the time to do it. Don't leave in that condition. Come forward here and talk to these folks and they'd love to uh, help you start your kingdom walk. Lord, as we leave this place, we thank you for being the radical, amazing love, beautiful Lord that you are. It's overwhelming. Fill us, Lord, with that love so that we overflow to all people at all times and all situations, no ifs, ands, or buts. Help us to honor you in all we do in all we do, and build your kingdom in us and through us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said one last time. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Go build the kingdom.